What's up out there, revolutionaries? Welcome to this week's episode of The Vault, where we will be discussing cannabis and veteran advocacy. I'm Justin Staples, your host as always, and with me today is our co-host, John Custer. How we doing, everyone? With us as well today is Eric Gopel, a U.S. veteran and founder of and CEO of Veterans Cannabis Coalition, a nonprofit advocacy group working to end cannabis prohibition while ensuring veteran access and fair treatment. Eric, welcome to The Vault. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Right. So I guess we just want to start at the top and ask, what led you to creating the Veterans Cannabis Coalition? Did you have any prior experience in policymaking or grassroots advocacy before this endeavor? So I came out of the military uh, in 2011, and uh, after contract, doing some defense contracting, went back to school. So about 2016, my last semester in college, I ended up in D.C., um, and that's where I started essentially my policy work. I, uh, you know, started off interning at a think tank, uh, writing on national security policy, and then followed that with a fellowship um, in Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand's office, working on defense and veterans affairs issues, and then following that uh, into the American Legion, um, the nation's largest wartime veterans uh, association, uh, working on national security policy as well. So it sounds like your time spent in D.C., you were really focused on kind of veteran affairs and things that were direct, directly, excuse me, relating to veterans. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I, I had uh, initially, you know, when I initially started my, my time in D.C. and I had intent, right, intended to, you know, maybe carve out a, a niche as like a national security analyst, um, you know, I didn't really you know, consider a lot of veterans issues, but, you know, as I became, as I got deeper into, you know, veterans affairs in general, I started to see a lot of uh, national security components, um, you know, particularly as it related to uh, to drug policy and how that impacts veterans and, you know, the the, uh, the country. So are you aiming more towards sparking, I guess, federal reform and forming, I guess, around drug policy, or do you want to just get at, or is there any specific unit of the military, I guess, like what's your, your niche, like you say, what's your target? You know, I mean, ending cannabis prohibition is obviously the big one. Um, you know, we're, we want to see the research and development of cannabis-based uh, treatments, you know, through the Department of Veterans Affairs. But the easiest way to enable that and the easiest way to, you know, solve a lot of the issues is full federal legalization. Um, and going beyond, and, and, you know, in my, in our feeling is essentially this is not a question that even should be left to the state, Right. Because uh, you look at like alcohol prohibition and how that was repealed, which uh, I guess yesterday was like the anniversary of that, um, you know, and how it's how it has taken decades and, uh, and and still in some cases, you know, there are still pretty heavy restrictions on use sale of of alcohol. You know, I have family in Alabama, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and there are dry counties in that state, and all it really does is uh, create a, another, you know, it doesn't stop people from drinking, right? It just creates a way for police to essentially uh, harass and uh, and target people for violating a you know uh, essentially a use law. Right. Besides cannabis uh, reform, Eric, you know what is your organization, the Veterans Cannabis Coalition? Um, you know, really hoping to do. What are some other initiatives or core values that you know really embody uh, what you do every day? So, I mean, our our focus, you know, our our big picture focus is on ending prohibition. But you know, we you know we have to work with. Uh, you know, the, the political environment that we have. I mean, we try to change that as best we can by educating and advocating in, uh, in D.C. Um, you know, so our, our, you know, our current effort is based on the, uh, is backing the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act. 
So last year, that bill was introduced, um, and that became the first standalone cannabis reform bill to ever uh, advance out of congressional committee. Uh, this year, I'm sure you're aware, the Safe Banking Act became the first bill to ever advance out of the House of Representatives on a vote. Yep. Um, but the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act is something that we see as both a necessary first step and something, and probably the most, and I think we should, we've we believe it should be the most likely uh, bipartisan effort when it comes to cannabis reform. You know, safe banking addresses a pretty narrow, uh, mostly industry issue. You know, uh, the MORE Act, which is we just got out of committee and would uh, decriminalize cannabis at the federal level as well as, uh, you know, create some equity provisions and expungements and, and some other social justice issues. Um, you know, it's, it's a great bill and has a lot of great stuff in it, but, you know, the Senate is not – the Senate's Republican controlled, and Lindsey Graham is not interested in taking out the legalization bill, or nor is Mitch McConnell. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the political in the current political environment, you know, what is our best way forward? How can we get to any kind of uh, you know legislative success or reform? Um, you know, and we think VA cannabis research is the way to go. It's it's something that is a, you know essentially needs to be done, right? We 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 have a lot of low-quality evidence that supports cannabis uh, being used in a variety of forms, and it would be great if the federal government actually spent time and money, um, you know, investigating those things and, you know, de- and then developing, you know, new classes of drugs based off of, uh, based off of those findings. Right. It definitely would. All right, so I guess when did your own personal journey with cannabis begin? Were you always a passionate advocate or was it something, I guess, in your transition out of the military into civilian life that kind of sparked your interest in the field? Yeah, it was definitely a, a post-military thing. I actually uh, had never smoked weed or you know used cannabis in any form uh, prior to uh, getting out. So 25, I think, was the first time I had uh, I smoked cannabis and, you know, I had a you know, very pleasant effect. <laughs> and... I have uh, avoided, you know, I'm not necessarily the, the greatest uh, example as far as, you know, I don't have a, a lot of really debilitating, um, you know, physical and mental health issues, although I deal with depression and PTSD mm-hmm. and chronic pain, like many veterans do. Um, you know, so for me, cannabis has been a, uh, you know, a tool, right, in the toolbox. It's, it, doesn't fi- it doesn't fix everything, right, but it helps. And certainly when, it's, when it comes to stuff like sleep, which I've, uh, which I've dealt with insomnia for many years, um, you know, if you can't get good sleep, it's really hard to, you know, function or stay healthy in any real way. So, you know, just in terms of helping me get to sleep, it's been, you know, a real, a real, uh, had a lot of positive benefit. And so, I mean, and, you know, my, my experience with cannabis, I saw reflected in the experiences of, you know, all every, almost every veteran I knew, uh, go, you know, going to school and then post, you know, after the military, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and based, and after we started this work, you know, we've talked to now thousands of veterans around the country. And, you know, you could say it's anecdotal, but when everybody is telling you the exact same story, because everyone gets the exact same meds and, and same models of treatment from the VA, so essentially you have a pretty good baseline of understanding of, like, what veterans are experiencing, you know, from the VA, from private health. And then when they turn around and tell you, hey, you know, shockingly enough, this cocktail of antidepressants and, you know, sedatives and stimulants and opioids and all this other stuff didn't really help. Um, You know, whereas cannabis for a lot of veterans becomes like the only thing that they really use to manage a pretty, you know, complex array of other issues. 
right? right? Now, it doesn't mean they don't use other non-drug you know, drug tools uh, like meditation or you know, you know, talk therapy and things like that. But you know, as far as like a pharmaceutical answer goes, you know, we believe that cannabis and certainly, again, my experience, my, you know, a lot of other veterans' personal experience seen it reflected in research, um, is that this is a far better alternative to a, a, you know, a large selection of drugs that are regularly and commonly prescribed. Um, which all carry pretty significant uh, risks of uh, risks of their own. I think you said something that was kind of powerful um, there a little back ago, where you said, you know, you personally didn't feel like you were suffering from many things that cannabis could potentially help with, but then you list, listed off chronic pain, PTSD, and, and depression, and kind of followed then up saying, as most veterans do, and it kind of just struck me there how like nonchalantly. You said that and kind of expressed it and almost sad in a way because it's 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 true. Do you feel, you know, that this yeah. country as a whole just doesn't place enough of a priority of our soldiers' mental health and well-being, um, not only when they're obviously over-serving, but then when they come back home? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly. There was there been a, there was a hearing on active duty and veteran suicide this week in, uh, in the Senate. And there was actually a bill that was just introduced um, by Dan Sullivan and Tammy Baldwin, uh, senators from Alaska and Wisconsin, basically looking at um, an issue that we've known for a very long time as, as advocates, which is polypharmacy. It, you know, the use of three plus medications and generally, medic you know, using medications to deal with the side effects of other medications, right, which is... Uh, been a, a pretty regular, uh, you know, anecdotal story from, you know, again, thousands of veterans, right? Like right. They, they'll have the drugs for their primary causes and then they'll have, you know, a lot of drugs for all these secondary issues. So, you know, like the antidepressants kill your libido. So, okay. So here's, you know, Viagra, you know, to, uh, to you know, to make sure that you can still have, you know, normal sexual function. Sorry, oh. my dog's uh, freaking out here for a second. No problem. What type of dog? One second. That's <laughs> uh. It's a little Pomeranian mix oh. for a rescue that my girlfriend and I got uh, when we were living in Virginia. That nice. definitely sounds like a little feisty one. <laughs> so, yeah, as far as, yeah, as far as mental health, it is, I mean, it, but what's reflected, it's reflected everywhere, right? Like this country doesn't value mental health. You know, there's a huge, um, you know, there's a huge shortfall of just qualified mental health professionals in the U.S. healthcare system, Right. You know, so I mean, when people talk about, oh, you know, oh, just call the crisis line. It's like, what, what's, what is really going to be their offer? They're not going to sit you down with a therapist. More than likely, if you call in in crisis, they're just going to sedate you and put you on drugs. I mean, <laughs> like, there's not a lot of tools that the VA and private health, because again, this isn't, this isn't unique to the VA. Although, what we'd like to, the way I look at it is, you know, the VA loves to talk about how they train 70% of the country's doctors at some point in their careers. And a lot of what the VA does is now is then picked up by private health because the VA is the largest single um, healthcare system in the country, you know, treating more than six million people a year. Right. So, you know, the, the models that the VA, um, you know, puts out, like they led the way in opioid prescribing, yeah. right? And now they've led the way in opioid tapering and patient abandonment. So the issue was never with, you know, the issue with opioid overdosing was never with patients who were legally prescribed, you know, the opioids. Most people who overdosed, the vast majority of people who overdosed on uh, prescription opioids 
basically got them through diverted channels, right? They they weren't the legal recipients or the you know the Nintendo yeah the legal recipients of those drugs in the first place. Mm-hmm. And we're and now we're even past that, right? Like they've now you know the DEA and uh, the DEA has cracked down pretty significantly on doctors who prescribe opioids. So you now have downward pressure on opioid prescribing. But what are they giving in? I mean, what are they giving in as an alternative? So a lot of the vets that we talk to. You know, they're no longer getting opioids, but they're getting gabapentin, you know, Lyrica or uh, pregabalin, right? And these are theoretically pretty safe drugs. They're Schedule Five, except that when I hear, you know, what we hear is like, oh, well, I have fits of rage, right? I have weird, you know, euphoric, uh, you know, uh, experiences with like with these drugs, and it's like, okay, so, and again, more as research keeps coming out because. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of these drugs that are being prescribed have very poor um, basis of research, especially for what they're being prescribed off-label to in, in most cases. So, sorry, yeah, I mean that's all. That's very a long way to say that uh, what we're what we're dealing with here is obviously it's a mental health issue. You know, mental health issues across the board, and mental health being you know tied into physical health, very much a thing. So you know, you can't just treat one without the other. And the way that we've approached it so far has been really not treating either and expecting that somehow that's going to improve, right? The VA likes to say that, oh, hey, you know, veteran suicide has been flat. Okay, true, right? It's been flat at about 6,000 plus for over 15 years. So despite everything that the VA has done, billions of dollars in interventions and, you know, policies and programs and everything else, why have they been unable to make a dent in the veteran suicide rate? Well, because they won't even address the polypharmacy issue or the you know, pharmaceutical issue mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, any other vet will tell you is an issue. So, Right. right. And you mentioned uh, there for a bit about pretty much how the VA can, uh, not can, does directly control what options are available to veterans. And uh, we, we saw that uh, earlier this year, a handful of proposals that would increase veteran freedoms around access to medical cannabis were kind of, you know, shut down by the VA. So uh, in your opinion, you know, what will it take for the VA to have a major shift in their policies around this? So the VA has just has an institutional opposition to cannabis. Um, it, you know, and th- this is based on public and private statements that, that we've, you know, that have, that we've heard slash been told slash been related to us. Um, you know, the VA, the, the head of the v, uh, VA health, uh, the veterans health administration just said that, you know, he doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want to see Richard, Dr. Richard Stone. Um, he does not want to see the VA take the lead on cannabis research. And he thinks that cannabis use among veterans is an issue. I'm like, okay. And again, right, this is this is where the the disconnect becomes so uh, jarring that you have to wonder what else is in play, right? Why can't anyone say the word pharmaceutical, right? Why do we continue to ignore the role that these things play? Sure. Um, you know, and so the VA opposition is expected, and the way to get around VA opposition is passing laws because VA does not make laws, right? Mm-hmm. The VA, you know, enforces what laws are on the books. Mm-hmm. So if Congress says VA do this and Congress, you know, executes proper oversight, then VA is, is expected to carry out the law, right? They're not... Uh, they're not a private they're, uh, you know, government they're, 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 rule, they're rule makers, uh, right. you know, not, you know, um, they don't create the law, so... 
How has, you know, it sounds like you're you're pretty outspoken, uh, um, obviously, about this. I'm sure that the VA doesn't necessarily like um, veterans like you coming out like this. But I'm curious, what's been the general response like in D.C.? What have been um, the political figures or just kind of influential stakeholders or lawmakers that could influence policy? What have been their reactions to your group and your advocacy? I mean, we rarely get pushback directly because none of what we're saying can actually can really be disputed. Right. I mean, you know, you can't talk about suicide without talking about the drugs that veterans are using and refusing to talk about that means that you're really not addressing the issue. So, and when I, and I can very easily point out that the the drugs that are commonly prescribed don't have evidence to basically back the way that they are being used. So the idea that, you know, you can put somebody on, you know, a benzodiazepine like Valium or Xanax, um, you know, for five, 10 years, right? Like, no, the, the research shows maybe six months, <laughs> you know, worth of evidence as to, you know, how that impacts. Um, and yet we, we understand that that kind of, you know, long-term prescribing like that can, uh, you know, it's not a, di- you know, it's, it's always complex, right? When you're talking suicide. So, you know, I, the way I look at it is like drugs, like, you know, antidepressants and these antipsychotics and, uh, you know, gap, you know, gabapentin and all this other stuff, it lowers resilience. Right. And that's, and that's not, and then, all, and then the other life, you know, takes place, right. Divorce, uh, you know, job issues, financial stress, a lot of veterans are under financial stress, right. So, you, you know, you're on top of your, your mental and physical health issues. You know, you're like a lot of other Americans and just trying to figure out how you're going to make, you know, how are you going to make, uh, you know, the rent check, right. you know, these, these, you know, it, it's veterans are, are, are not unique in the sense that the issues they deal with are not unique to veterans. Mm-hmm. It's, they might be unique in the sense that they deal with maybe more issues at the same time than the average American. But again, like depression, financial stress, right. These aren't, these find, uh, these affect everybody. Um, but what we do have is that, you know, veterans are pretty well studied. And so what you see benefiting the, the veterans and, you know, negatively impacting veterans, I think is a pretty good indication of what, you know, how that, how that works for the rest of the country. Right. So if we see that can that veterans are responding incredibly well to cannabis, especially as an alternative to the drugs that they were legally prescribed, then we know that that's, that that's going to be the case for millions of other Americans who deal with the exact same things that veterans deal with. Right. Right. So um, pretty much as legalization continues to spread across the country, have you seen more veterans becoming vocal about cannabis access or does, I guess, the federal prohibition still kind of scare people away from being as vocal as you have been? No, I mean, more and more veterans, I think, are getting comfortable with stepping up. Um, But, uh, you know, there's still a lot of uh, stigma and there's and for a lot of vets, there's a, uh, you know, there's there's, you know, financial risk involved. So, for example, you know, almost one third of the federal workforce are veterans. Obviously, the federal government doesn't allow you, no matter what legal state you live in, to use cannabis. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, there's a ton of veterans right, right there who are ca- caught, the t- caught in that catch-22 of, okay, I can use these legal drugs, which don't help or might, might actually be hurting me, um, and keep my job with the feds, or. I can choose to use cannabis, run the risk of, you know, popping hot in the drug test and, you know, being fired. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, why, why are we putting people in that situation? Right. Especially when we know that, 
you know, no, no matter what you can say about THC, it's been studied for decades, and government has been looking for harms these, this entire time. And the best that they can come up with are these very weak associations with things like psychosis and uh, mm. and paranoia. And it's like, all right, question, well, man, what do you like, say to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, you know, all drugs have effects. Okay. You know, there you know, we understand, we we acknowledge that THC has risks for certain people. You know, people with you know weak functioning hearts maybe shouldn't take massive concentrations of THC, right? Uh, we, but at the same time, you know, and this is something that um, the chairman of House Veterans Affairs Committee brought up at one point during an open hearing, was he was worried, this is the Democrat Mark DeCano from Riverside, he was worried about the developing brains of young service members mm-hmm. and what the impact of THC or cannabis would be on them. And I'm thinking to myself, having actually served in the military, uh, we were dipping, we were drinking, you know, a lot of guys were doing spice or they were doing other drugs that, you know, were in or out of your system in a day or two. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, uh, this is not a, uh, a population that shies away from substance use, mm-hmm. mil- the military, right? But we've normalized and accepted certain kinds of substance use. Alcohol and tobacco kill 600,000 plus people a year, Right. And uh, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. So, I mean, like whatever cannabis does, it doesn't do that. And no matter how many people are using it, it's never going to do that because it physically, you know, chemically, it just can't. Mm -hmm. So uh, just on a harm reduction, uh, just, uh, just in in terms of harm reduction, that argument completely falls apart. Right. Because it's like, all right, well, we, you don't have, you don't, you don't have that standard for any other drug. You know, um, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, ibuprofen, aspirin, that, those category, that category of drugs, mm-hmm. associated with almost over 10,000 uh, deaths a year just by themselves from, you know, liver, kidney uh, damage, uh, you know, gastrointestinal bleeds. And yet that's over the counter, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to a liquor store and buy enough booze to kill myself in a sitting and no one's going to bat an eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's the hypocrisy and the sort of, and it just highlights just, you know, we don't have drug prohibition, right? We have, you know, we have drugs we like and drugs we don't like, you know, but we, and we don't really have a good, I think, framework of looking at them and assessing their relative risks. So, you know, the, the drugs that are most, most commonly accepted and most normalized in our country are also the most dangerous drugs, right? Nicotine and alcohol and the drugs that are, and some of the drugs that are the least likely to cause harm or have the lowest risk profile like cannabis. And I'd include like, you know, natural psychedelics, plant-based psychedelics as well in there. You know, these things are all considered to have no medical, no, no medical benefit and a huge potential for abuse, which anyone familiar with those two, you know, substances knows it's sort of false just on its face. But, you know, that's the, you know, that's the sort of uh, hypocrisy that we're dealing with, with, with federal drug policy. Definitely. Uh, one aspect that we kind of haven't touched on yet is the economic benefit that, uh, you know, a legal cannabis market brings to um, what it can bring to a whole country, let alone the states that we've been able to and on the sides we've been able to legalize it so far. So I uh, just wanted to know is, you know, I guess pushing for job creation for veterans, something that we know can be an issue that leads to, you know, you see a lot of veterans end up homeless when they come back. And, you know, can you see cannabis, I guess, kind of facilitating that cushion and transition back into the life through an economic aspect and getting jobs and businesses for veterans as they, you know, again, transition back into civilian life? I mean, yes, cannabis definitely holds that potential. You know, and I know a lot of vets that have turned, especially to, uh, to the cultivation side, because they find, you know, there's, 
there's something fulfilling and something therapeutic about, you know, growing medicinal plants. And I totally get that. Right. Um, but the, but the other side of that is the cannabis industry as it currently stands is, is garbage, right? There's no job security. There are, you know, a few places that offer benefits. It's like, this isn't much of a job for veterans to go into. And I'll, and you know, just, I'll be honest, like when you look at the stats, veterans already have lower rates of unemployment than Mm non-veterans. So it's not so much the, you know, veterans lack for jobs, veterans lack for meaningful jobs, veterans lack for, you know, jobs with good benefits and high pay, right? Because most veterans are, are 85% of veterans are, were enlisted while they were in. So that means they don't necessarily have a college degree. Mm -hmm. Now I, I went out, you know, I was an enlisted guy. I came in as a private, I got out as a sergeant, then I went back to school in the GI Bill, right? That's the story of a lot of, you know, a lot of guys, you know, in my, or excuse me, a lot of veterans, you know, in, in my age group. But at the same time, you know, there's not that many veterans with college degrees. So, you know, there's a lot of veterans with, you know, low skill or trade skills. And those jobs are always under the most kind of, the most financial pressure, um, you know, in, in bad economic times. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way things are going, it's going toward more automation. Uh, so, you know, the cannabis industry as it's, as it exists today is very, still very hands-on, but that's not what it's going to look like in the future, especially mm-hmm. post-legalization and when they have access to the kind of, you know, capital and other stuff that allow them to automate. Because again, labor is always your most expensive cost. Um, and that's usually what people, you know, a lot of companies look to eliminate, uh, you know, first thing or, you know, uh, draw down at least. Right. So there, there's, there's definitely potential for cannabis as an economic engine. But I think it's more. I think more so looking at legalizing cannabis as getting out of the way, getting out of our own way on research, right? Because what the the just the just the medicinal side of cannabis, not even talking industrial applications, all the industrial applications of hemp, um, just the medicinal side of cannabis. I mean, it's a revolution in the waiting, right? There are literally thousands of drugs that are going to be developed from the hundred plus cannabinoids that are in that are in that plant. Um, and, but that just doesn't magically happen either, right? Like, so that takes government investment, it takes private investment. And that's honestly where I think, you know, the real future of, of cannabis is, is in terms of really, really digging in and unlocking the, the potential for, uh, you know, for, for individual cannabinoids and understanding and sort of how they interact with each other and, and then designing drugs based on that. Right. And what we know is that all of those, all of those cannabinoids are far safer than almost anything else that is uh, on offer mm-hmm. for any of these any of these symptoms or uh, conditions that they would be uh, used to treat. Yep, and I think uh, back to the point you've been making to to open up that wormhole of extremely targeted, you know, cannabis medicines. We'll we'll need more research, which is a common rallying cry with uh, advocates here on the vault like yourself. Um, Eric, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, you know. What can we expect from you uh, in, in 2020 in these upcoming legislative sessions? And then where can our uh, listeners go to um, follow the Veterans Cannabis Coalition? Great. So uh, 2020, we're focusing on getting the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act passed. Great. Got out of committee last year. It's been lingering this year, but based on our conversations with staff and, and members of Congress, um, we, we have a, a good idea that it's going to be moving forward, and uh, we plan to... Uh, focus our advocacy in the Senate where it, it definitely needs some help. Um, we still think that this has this of uh, any cannabis re- reform bill currently under consideration that the VA medicinal cannabis research act, HR 712 has the best chance of passage, uh, in this session. Um, 
And so, and if you want to, and obviously we're going to be doing events and other actions and activities, uh, you know, relating to that and in support of that over, over the course of 2020, um, both in California and DC and some other, uh, you know, battlegrounds, some swing states where we have some, some very effective veteran advocates on the ground already. That's awesome. And if folks want to, uh, want to follow us, our website is www.veteranscanacoalition.org. Our IG, uh, and it, our IG and Facebook handles are both at Veterans Canna Coalition. And uh, if folks actually want to take action, we have a phone, to, a call to action tool that will allow them to send uh, pre-formatted emails to their members of Congress in support of some of the bills that we're endorsing. Um, so if they'd like to take a part of that, they can text VCC, that's Victor Charlie Charlie, to 52886. That's text VCC. Two five two eight eight six, awesome. and they can uh, they'll get a link and they can take action. Appreciate you plugging those in. I, I think uh, a few of our followers definitely will. Well, I appreciate that, John and Justin. Thank you so much. Thank well, you, thank you for your service, uh, and thank you for joining us today, man. Yeah, likewise. And I was going to say, uh, definitely hope to have you back on next year and uh, get some updates on these VA bills. Oh yeah, definitely. Thank you, revolutionaries, for joining us for another episode of The Vault, where we got to focus on cannabis and veteran advocacy. I want to say thanks again to U.S. vet Eric Gopel for joining us and taking us through everything that he has going on with Veterans Cannabis Coalition. Definitely uh, another great episode here at The Vault, and um, appreciate everything Eric's doing and look forward to, to uh, following these positive impacts and changes he's going to bring to uh, not only D.C., but the entire country, hopefully. You know where to find us.